Section 55 of The Valley of the Moon by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Three, Chapter Twenty. I'm not done with you, children, had been Mrs. Mortimer's parting words, and several times that winter she ran up to advise and to teach Saxon how to calculate her crops for the small, immediate market, for the increasing spring market, and for the height of summer at which time she would be able to sell all she could possibly grow, and then not supply the demand. In the meantime, Hazel and Hattie were used every odd moment in hauling manure from Glen Ellen, whose barnyards had never known such a thorough cleaning. Also, there were loads of commercial fertilizer from the railroad station, bought under Mrs. Mortimer's instructions. The convicts paroled were Chinese. Both had served long in prison and were old men. But the day's work they were habitually capable of won Mrs. Mortimer's approval. Gao Yum, twenty years before, had had the charge of the vegetable garden of one of the great Menlo Park estates. His disaster had come in the form of a fight over a game of fan-tan in the Chinese quarter at Redwood City. His companion, Chan Chi, had been a hatchet man of note in the old fighting days of the San Francisco Tongs. But a quarter of a century of discipline in the prison vegetable gardens had cooled his blood and turned his hand from hatchet to hoe. These two assistants had arrived in Glen Ellen like precious goods in bond and had been receded for by the local deputy sheriff, who, in addition, reported on them to the prison authorities each month. Saxon, too, made out a monthly report and sent it in. As for the danger of their cutting her throat, she quickly got over the idea of it. The mailed hand of the state hovered over them. The taking of a single drink of liquor would provoke that hand to close down and jerk them back to prison cells. Nor had they freedom of movement. When old Gal Yum needed to go to San Francisco to sign certain papers before the Chinese Council, permission had first to be obtained from San Quentin. Then, too, neither man was nasty-tempered. Saxon had been apprehensive of the task of bossing two desperate convicts, but when they came, she found it a pleasure to work with them. She could tell them what to do, but it was they who knew how to do. From them, she learned all the ten thousand tricks and quirks of artful gardening, and she was not long in realizing how helpless she would have been had she depended on local labor. Still further, she had no fear because she was not alone. She had been using her head. It was quickly apparent to her that she could not adequately oversee the outside work and at the same time do the housework. She wrote to Ukiah to the energetic widow who had lived in the adjoining house and taken in washing. She had promptly closed with Saxon's offer. Mrs. Paul was forty, short in stature, and weighed two hundred pounds, but never wearied on her feet. Also, she was devoid of fear, and according to Billy, could settle the hash of both Chinese with one of her mighty arms. Mrs. Paul arrived with her son a country lad of sixteen who knew horses and could milk. Hilda, the pretty Jersey, 
which had successfully passed Edmund's expert eye. Though Mrs. Paul ably handled the house, there was one thing Saxon insisted on doing, namely, washing her own pretty flimsies. When I'm no longer able to do that, she told Billy, you can take a spade to that clump of redwoods beside Wildwater and dig a hole. It will be time to bury me. It was early in the days of Madrano Ranch, at the time of Mrs. Mortimer's second visit, that Billy drove in with a load of pipe and house, chicken yards, and barn were piped from the second hand tank he installed below the house spring. Ah, I guess I can use my head, he said. I watched a woman over on the other side of the valley packing water two hundred feet from the spring to the house, and I did some figuring. I put it at three trips a day, and on wash day, a whole lot more. And you can't guess what I made out. She traveled a year packing water. One hundred and twenty-two miles. Do you get that? One hundred and twenty-two miles. I asked her how long she'd been there. Thirty-one years. Multiply it for yourself. Three thousand seven hundred and eighty-two miles. All for the sake of two hundred feet of pipe. Wouldn't that jar you? Oh, I ain't done yet. There's a bathtub, and a stationary tub's a-coming soon, as I can see my way. And, say, Saxon, you know that little clear flat just where wild water runs into Sonoma? There's all an acre of it, and it's mine. Got that? And no walking on the grass for you. It'll be my grass. I'm going upstream the ways and put in a ram. I got a big second-hand one staked out, that I can get for ten dollars, and it'll pump more water than I need. And you'll see alfalfa growing. That'll make your mouth water. I've got to have another horse to travel around on. You're using Hazel and Hattie too much to give me a chance, and I'll never see them as soon as you start delivering vegetables. I guess that alfalfa will help some to keep another horse going. But Billy was destined for a time to forget his alfalfa in the excitement of bigger ventures. First came trouble. The several hundred dollars he had arrived with in Sonoma Valley, and all his commissions since earned, had gone into improvements and living. The eighteen dollars a week rental for his six horses at Lawndale went to pay wages, and he was unable to buy the needed saddle horse for his horse-buying expeditions. This, however, he got around by again using his head and killing two birds with one stone. He began breaking colts to drive, and in the driving drove them wherever he sought horses. So far all was well, but a new administration in San Francisco, pledged to economy, had stopped all street work. This meant the shutting down of the Lawndale Quarry, which was one of the sources of supply for paving blocks. The six horses would not only be back on his hands, but he would have to feed them. How Mrs. Paul, Gao Yum, and Chan Chi were to be paid was beyond him. I guess we bit off more than we could chew, he admitted to Saxon. That night he was late in coming home. He brought with him a radiant face. Saxon's was no less radiant. It's all right, she greeted him coming out to the barn where he was unhitching a tired but fractious colt. I talked with all three. They see the situation, 
and are perfectly willing to let their wages stand a while. By another week, I start Hazel and Hattie delivering vegetables. Then the money will pour in from the hotels, and my books won't look so lopsided. And, oh, Billy, you'd never guess. Old Gow Young has a bank account. He came to me afterward, I guess he was thinking it over, and offered to lend me four hundred dollars. What do you think of that? That I ain't going to be too proud to borrow it off him, if he is a chink. He's a white one, and maybe I'll need it. Because, you see, well, you can't guess what I've been up to since I seen you this morning. I've been so busy I ain't had a bite to eat. Using your head, she laughed. You can call it that, he joined in her laughter. I've been spending money like water. But you haven't got any to spend, she objected. I've got credit in this valley, I'll let you know, he replied, and I sure strained it some this afternoon. Now, guess. A saddle horse? He roared with laughter, startling the colt, which tried the bolt and lifted him half off the ground by his grip on its frightened nose and neck. Oh, I mean real guessing, he urged, when the animal had dropped back to earth and stood regarding him with trembling suspicion. Two saddle horses? Oh, I ain't got any imagination. I'll tell you. You know, Thiercroft, I bought his big wagon from him for sixty dollars. I bought a wagon from the Kenwood blacksmith, so-and-so, but it'll do, for forty-five dollars. And I bought Ping's wagon, a peach, for sixty-five dollars. I could have got it for fifty, if he hadn't seen I wanted it bad. But the money, questioned Saxon faintly, you hadn't a hundred dollars left. Didn't I tell you I had credit? Well, I have. I stood him off for the wagons. I ain't spent a cent of cash money today, except for a couple of long-distance switches. Then I bought three sets of work harnesses. They're chain harnesses and second-hand, for twenty dollars a set. I bought them from the fellow that's doing the hauling for the quarry. He don't need them anymore. And I rented four wagons from him, and four span of horses, too. At half a dollar a day for each horse, and half a dollar a day for each wagon. That's six dollars a day rent I gotta pay him. The three sets of spare harnesses is for my six horses. Then, let me see, yup, I rented two barns in Glen Ellen, and I ordered fifty tons of hay and a carload of bran and barley from the store in Glenwood. You see, I gotta feed all them fourteen horses and shoe em and everything. Oh, sure, Pete, I've went some. I hired seven men to go driving for me at two dollars a day, and, ouch, Jehoshaphat, what you doing? No, Saxon said gravely, having pinched him. You're not dreaming. She felt his pulse and forehead. No sign of a fever. She sniffed his breath. And you've not been drinking. Go on, tell me the rest of this, whatever it is. Ain't you satisfied? No, I want more. I want all. All right. But I just want you to know, first, that the boss I used to work for in Oakland ain't got nothing on me. I'm some man of affairs. If anybody should ride up on a vegetable wagon and ask you. Now, I'm going to tell you, though I can't see why the Glen Ellen folks didn't beat me to it. I guess they was asleep. Nobody would have overlooked a thing like this in the city. You see, it was like this. 
You know that fancy brickyard they're getting ready to start for making extra special fire brick for inside walls? Well, here I was, worrying about the six horses coming back on my hands, earning me nothing, and eating me into the poorhouse. I had to get them some work somehow, and I remembered the brickyard. I drove the colt down and talked with that Jap chemist who's been doing the experimenting. Gee, there was foreman looking over the ground and everything getting ready to hum. I looked over the lay and studied it. Then I drove up to where they're opening the clay pit. You know, that fine white chalky stuff we saw him boring out just outside the hundred and forty acres with the three knolls. It's a downhill haul a mile, and two horses can do it easy. In fact, their hardest job will be hauling the empty wagons up to the pit. I tied the colt and went to figuring. The Jap professor told me the manager and other big guns of the company was coming up on the morning train. I wasn't shouting things out to anybody, but I just made myself into a committee of welcome, and, when the train pulled in, there I was, extending the glad hand of the bird. Likewise, the glad hand of the guy you used to know in Oakland once, a third-rate dub prize-fighter by the name of, let me see, yep, I got it right, Big Bill Roberts, that was the name he used to sport, but now he's known as William Roberts, E.S.Q. Well, as I was saying, I gave him the glad hand and trailed along with him to the brickyard, and from the talk I could see things was doing. Then I watched my chance and sprung my proposition. I was scared stiff all the time, for maybe the teaming was already arranged. But I knew it wasn't when they asked for my figures. I had them by heart, and I rattled them off, and the top guy took them down in his notebook. We're going into this big, and at once, he says, looking at me sharp. What kind of outfit you got, Mr. Roberts? Me with only Hazel and Hattie? and them too small for heavy teaming. I can slap fourteen horses and seven wagons on the job at the jump, says I, and if you want more, I'll get them, that's all. Give us fifteen minutes to consider, Mr. Roberts, he says. Sure, says I, important as all hell, and <clears throat> me, but a couple of other things first. I want a two-year contract, and them figures all depends on one thing otherwise they don't go. What's that, he says. The dump, says I. Here we are on the ground, and I might as well show you. I did. I showed them, or I'd lose out if they stuck to their plan, on account of the big dip down and pull up to the dump. All you gotta do, I says, is build the bunkers fifty feet over, throw the road around the rim of the hill, and make about seventy or eighty feet of elevated bridge. Say, Saxon, that kind of talk got em. It was straight. Only they'd been thinking about bricks, while I was only thinking of teaming. I guess they was all half an hour considering it, and I was almost as miserable waiting as when I waited for you to say yes after I asked you. I went over the figures, calculating what I could throw off if I had to. You see, I had given it to him stiff, regular city prices, and I was prepared to trim down. Then they came back. Prices ought to be lower in the country, says the top guy. Nope, I says. This is a wine grape valley. 
It don't raise enough hay and feed for its own animals. It has to be shipped in from the San Joaquin Valley. Why, I can buy hay and feed cheaper in San Francisco laid down than I can here and haul it myself. And that struck em hard. It was true, and they knew it. But say, if they'd had asked about wages for drivers, about horseshoeing prices, I'd had to come down, because, you see, there ain't no Teamsters Union in the country, and no Horseshoers Union, and rent is low, and them two items come a whole lot cheaper. Oh, this afternoon, I got a word bargain with the blacksmith across from the post office, and he takes my whole bunch and throws off twenty-five cents on each shoeing, though it's on the QT. But they didn't think to ask, being too full of bricks. Billy felt in his breast pocket, drew out a legal-looking document, and handed it to Saxon. There it is, he said, the contract, full of all the agreements, prices, and penalties. I saw Mr. Hale downtown and showed it to him. He says it's okay. And say, then I lit out, all over town, Kenwood, Lawndale, everywhere, everybody, everything. The quarry teaming finishes Friday of this week, and I take the whole outfit and start Wednesday of next week hauling lumber for the buildings and brick for the kilns and all the rest. And when they're ready for the clay, I'm the boy that'll give it to them. But I ain't told you the best yet. I couldn't get the switch right away from Kenwood to Lawndale, and while I waited, I went over my figures again. You couldn't guess it in a million years. I'd made a mistake in addition somewhere and soaked them ten percent more than I expected. Talk about finding money. Any time you want them couple of extra hands to help with the vegetables, say the word. Though we're going to have to pinch the next couple of months. And go ahead and borrow that four hundred from Gow Yum and tell him you'll pay him eight percent interest and that we won't want it for more than three or four months. When Billy got away from Saxon's arms, he started leading the colt up and down to cool it off. He stopped so abruptly that his back collided with the colt's nose, and there was a lively minute of rearing and plunging. Saxon waited, for she knew a fresh idea had struck Billy. Say, he said, do you know anything about bank accounts and drawing checks? End of section 55